You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a podcast that reimagines citizen as a verb, not a legal status. This season is all about tech and how it can bring us together instead of tearing us apart. We're bringing you the people using technology for so much more than revenue and user growth. They're using it to help us citizen. I have been working over the past year to try to integrate my own thinking around technology. And last year, I wrote a bit of a manifesto. Back in 2019, I was invited to speak at Google I.O., an annual developer conference held by Google. 
they wanted me to share my thoughts on what the future of technology could look like. I went on a journey to try to understand how all my data existed amongst the major platforms, amongst app developers. And what came out of that was a set of principles to help guide us more conscientiously into the future. Now, the first principle of my manifesto is all about transparency. Like, I wanted to understand what was going on inside the apps, behind the websites I was spending all my time on. When I want to know what's in my food, I don't drag a chemistry set to the grocery store and inspect every item point by point. I read the nutrition label. I know the content, the calories, the ratings. I shouldn't have to guess about what's inside the product. I certainly shouldn't have to read 33,000 word legalese terms of service to figure out what's really happening inside. It's pretty simple. We make better decisions about the things we consume when we know what's in them. So if I'm checking out an app on the App Store, right, and I see up front that it's going to harvest my data and sling it on some digital street corner. Psst. Can I interest you in some data? Data, 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 data? I can ask myself, hey, self, are you okay with this app harvesting your data and slinging it on a digital street corner? And then, having asked myself that question, I can decide whether or not to download it. I don't have to hope that it won't screw me over. I can know. But check it out. This nutrition label idea hasn't just existed in the vacuum of my own brain. It's a real thing. There are actual people making nutrition labels in the world of tech. In the same way that I walk into a bakery and I see a cake that's been baked and I might think to myself, I wonder what's in that cake. We would want the same thing for a data set where even if you encounter that data set in the wild, you as a data practitioner will think to yourself, I wonder if this is representative. Kasia Shimolinsky is one of those people. These labels are a little different from what I proposed at Google I.O. Their data nutrition labels aren't for consumers like me and you at the end of the assembly line. Instead, they're for the people at the very beginning, the data scientists. Now, Kasha's data nutrition labels are an easy-to-use tool to help data scientists pick the data that's right for the thing they're making. We interact with algorithms every day, even when we're not aware of it. They affect the decisions we make about hiring, about policing, pretty much everything. And in the same way that we, the people, ensure our well-being through government standards and regulations on business activities, for example, data scientists need standards too. Kasha is fighting for standards that will make sure that artificial intelligence works for our collective benefit, or at least doesn't undermine it. Hi. Hello. How are you feeling right now, Kasha? I'm feeling pretty good. Beginning of another week. Kasha is the co-founder and lead of the Data Nutrition Project, the team behind those labels. They've also worked as a digital services technologist in the White House, on COVID analytics at McKinsey, and in communications at Google. Yeah, yeah. So I've kind of, I've jumped around. (laughs) 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 So why don't you introduce yourself and just tell me what you do. Uh, My name is Kasia Shemelinsky, and I am a technologist working on the ethics of data. And I'd say, you know, importantly to me, although I have always been a nerd and I I studied physics uh, a long time ago, I come from a family of artists. 
Actually, the painting behind me is by my brother. There's another one in the room by my mom. Um, and so I, I come from a really kind of multidisciplinary group of people who are driven by their passions. And that's kind of what I've tried to do too. And it's just led me on many different paths. Where does the interest in technology come from for you? You know, I, I don't think that it's really an interest in technology. It's just that we're in a technological time. And so when I graduated from university with this physics degree, I had a few options and none of them really seemed great. Uh, you know, I could go into defense work, you know, I could become a spy or I could make weapons. And that really wasn't so interesting to me. Um, Wait, was being, was a, was spy really an option? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I could do that. Um, but I, I didn't. And, and none of these are really interesting because I, I wanted to make an impact and I wanted to drive change. And I think that was around, you know, um, early thousands and technology was the place to be. That's where you could really have the most impact and solve really big problems. Um, and so that's where I ended up. So I actually don't think that it's really about the technology at all. I think that the technology is just a tool that you can use to, to kind of make an impact in the world. I love the way you describe the interest in technology is really just an interest in the world. So do you remember some of the first steps that led you to what you are doing now? So when I graduated, I, I actually applied to many things and didn't get them. And what I realized that I really didn't know how to do it all was tell a story. Um, and coming out of a fairly technical path, I couldn't really make eye contact. I hadn't talked to a variety of people. I mean, I was definitely one of the only people who had my identity in, in that discipline at that time. I went to a school where the, the head of the school at the time was saying that women might not be able to do science because biologically they were inferior in some way. Oh, that's nice. Very welcoming environment. Oh yeah. Super welcoming. And I was studying physics. And at the time I, I you know, was female identified. I now identify as non-binary. Um, but it, it wasn't like a great place to be doing science. And I, I just felt like coming out of that, I was, um, I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know what it was like to be part of a great community. And so I actually went into communications at Google, which was strange. I went from this super nerdy, very male dominated place to like a kind of like the party wing of, of technology at the time, right? So people who are doing a lot of marketing and communications and talking to journalists and telling stories and trying to figure out like what's interesting and how does this fit into the greater narratives of our time. So while at Google, I got to see inside of so many different projects that I think was a, a great benefit to being part of that strategy team. Uh, so I got to work on core search. I got to work on image search. I got to work on Gmail and calendar. And I started to see the importance of, first of all, knowing why you're building something before you start to build it, right? And there were so many times that I saw a really, really cool product at the end of the day, something, an algorithm or something technical that was just really cool. But there was no reason that it needed to exist, right? From, from a person perspective, from a society perspective. I am relieved to hear you say that. <laughs> that has been one of my critiques of this industry for quite some time. It's like, whose problems are you trying to solve? And so you are at the epicenter of one of the major companies seeing some of this firsthand. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it was endemic. I mean, it just happens all the time. And it's not 
the fault of anyone in particular. You just put a bunch of really smart engineers on a technical problem and they just find amazing ways to solve that. But then at the end of the day, you say, well, how are we actually going to use this? And that would fall to the comms team, right? Or the marketing team to say, okay, now what are we going to do with this? Um, so that was one thing. And that's why I actually ended up moving into product management where I could think about why we want to build something to begin with and then make sure we're building the right thing. Um, so I got closer to the technology after that job. The second thing that I became aware of is the importance of considering the whole pipeline of the thing that you build, because the thing that you build, its DNA is in the initial data that you put into it. And I'm talking specifically about algorithmic systems here. So you know, one example I have from my days when I was at Google, I actually, I worked out of the London office and there was a new search capability and it was trained entirely on one particular accent and then when other people tried to use that, if they didn't have that very specific accent, it wasn't working so well. And I really didn't know much about AI at the time. I hadn't studied it, but I realized, you know, bias in, bias out, like garbage in, garbage out. You, you feed this machine something, the machine is going to look exactly like what you fed it, right? You are what you eat. We'll be right back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. 
I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We use these terms data, we use these terms algorithm, and artificial intelligence. And so before we keep going, I'd love for you to pause and kind of explain what these things are and their relationship to each other. Data, algorithms, artificial intelligence. How how does Kasha define these? Yeah, thank you for taking a moment. I think that that's um, something that's so important in technology is that people feel like they aren't allowed to have an opinion or have thoughts about it because they don't, you know, quote unquote, don't understand it. Yeah. But you're right. It's just, it's just a, a definitional issue often. So data is anything that is programmatically accessible that is probably in enough volume to be used for something by a system. So it could be records of something. It could be weather information. It could be the notes taken by a doctor that then get turned into something that's programmatically accessible. There's a lot of stuff, and you can feed that to a machine. I'm really interested in algorithms because it's kind of the practical way of understanding something like AI. It's, it's a mathematical formula, and it, it takes some stuff and then it outputs something. So that could be something like you input where you live and your name, and then the algorithm will churn and spit out something like, you know, what race or ethnicity it thinks you are. And that algorithm, in order to to make whatever guesses it's making, needs to be fed a bunch of data uh, so that it can start to recognize patterns. When you deploy that algorithm out in, in the world, you feed it some data and it will spit out what it believes is the pattern that it recognizes based on what it knows. You know, there's different flavors of AI. I think a lot of people are very afraid of kind of the Terminator type AI. I'll be back. As, as we should be, because the Terminator is very scary. I've seen the documentary many times, and I don't want to live in that world. Yeah. <laughs> Le- legitimately very scary. Um, and so there's this, there's this question of, okay, is the AI going to come to eat our lunch, right? Are they smarter than us in all the things that we can do? And that's like, you know, generalized AI or, or even kind of super AI. We're not quite there yet. Currently, we're, we're in the phase where we have discrete AI that makes discrete decisions and we leverage those to help us in our daily lives or to hurt us sometimes. Yeah. Data as food for algorithms, I think is a really useful metaphor. And a lot of us out in the wild who aren't specialized in this, I think we're not encouraged to understand that relationship. I agree. And I think the the relationship between what you feed the algorithm and what it gives you is so direct and and people don't necessarily know that or see that and what you see is the the harm or the output that comes out of the system and what you don't see is all the work that went into building that system you have someone who decided in the beginning they wanted to use ai and then you have somebody who went and found the data and you have somebody else who cleaned the data 
And you got somebody or somebodies who then built the algorithm and trained the algorithm. And then you have the somebodies who coded that up. And then you have the somebodies that deployed that. And then you have people who are running that. And so when the algorithm comes out the end and there's a decision that's made, you get the loan, you didn't get the loan. The algorithm uh, recognizes your speech, doesn't recognize your speech, sees you, doesn't see you. People think, oh, just change the algorithm. Oh no, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Because you have that long chain of people who are doing so many different things and it becomes very complicated to try to fix that. So the more that we can understand that the process begins with the question, do I need AI for this? And then very quickly after, where are we going to get the data to feed that so that we make the right decision? The sooner we understand that as a society, I think the easier it's going to be for us to build better AI because we're not just catching the issues at the very end of what can be a years long process. Mm. So, so what problems does the Data Nutrition Project aim to tackle? We've kind of talked about them all in pieces. At its core, the Data Nutrition Project, which is this research organization that I co-found a bunch of very smart people, we were all part of a, a fellowship that was looking at the ethics and governance of AI. And so when we sat down to say, what are the real things that we can do to drive change? Um, as practitioners, as people in the space, as people who had built AI before, we decided let's just go really small. And obviously it's actually a huge problem and it's, it's very challenging, but instead of saying, let's look at the harms that come out of an AI system, let's just think about what goes in. And I think we were, we were maybe eating a lot of snacks. We were holed up at the MIT Media Lab, right? So we were just all in this room for many, many hours, many, many days. And I think somebody at some point picked up, you know, a snack package. And we're like, what if you just had a nutritional label, like the one you have on food, you just put that on a data set. What would that do? I mean, is it possible, right? But if, if it is possible, would that actually change things? And we started talking it over and we thought, you know, we think it would. In our experience in data science as practitioners, we know that data doesn't come with standardized documentation. And often you get a data set and you don't know how you're supposed to use it or not use it. There may or may not be tools that you use to look at things that will tell you whether that data set is healthy for the thing that you want to do with it. The standard process would be a product manager, a CEO would come over to the desk of a data scientist and say, look, we have all this information about this new product we want to sell. We need to map the marketing information to the demographics of people who are likely to want to buy our product or click on our product. Don't make it happen. And the data scientist goes, okay. And the person goes, oh yeah, by Tuesday. And the person's like, oh, okay. Let me go find the right data for that. There's a whole world. You just Google a bunch of stuff and then you get the data and then you kind of poke around and you think, ah, seems pretty good. And then you use it and you build your algorithm on that. Your algorithm that's going to determine which demographics or what geographies or whatever it is you're trying to do. You train it on that data you found. And then you deploy that algorithm and it starts to work in production. And, you know, no fault of anybody really, but the industry has grown up so much faster than the structures and the scaffolding to keep that industry doing the right thing. So there might be documentation on some of this data. There might not be. In some cases, we were working with a data partner that was very concerned how people were going to use their data. The data set documentation was an 80 page PDF, eight zero. 
that data scientist who's on deadline for Tuesday is not going to read 80 pages. So our thought was, hey, can we distill the most important components of a data set and its usage to something that is maybe one sheet, two sheets, right? Using the analogy of the nutrition label, put it on a data set and then make that the standard so that anybody who is picking up a data set to decide whether or not to use it will very quickly be able to assess, is this healthy for the thing I want to do? It's a novel application of a thing that so many of us understand. What are some of the harms you've seen, some of the harms you're trying to avoid by the data scientists who are building these services not having access to healthy data? Yeah, let's say you have a data set about health outcomes and you're looking at people who have had heart attacks or something like that. And you realize that the data was only taken from men in their 60s. If you are now going to use this as a data set to train an algorithm to provide early warning signs for who might have a heart attack, you're going to miss entire demographics of people, which may or may not matter. That's a question. Does that matter? I don't know. But perhaps it matters what the average size of a body is or the average age of a body is, or maybe there's something that is gender or sex related. And you will miss all of that. If you just take the data at face value, you don't think about who is not represented here. I remember examples that I used to cite in some talks. It was the Amazon hiring decisions. Amazon software engineers recently uncovered a big problem. Their new online recruiting tool did not like women. It had an automated screening system for resumes, and that system ignored all the women because the data set showed that successful job candidates at Amazon were men. And so the computer, like garbage in, garbage out, the way we've discussed, said, well, you've defined success as male. You've fed me a bunch of female. That's not success. Therefore, my formula dictates they get rejected. And that affects people's job prospects. You know, that affects people's sense of their self-worth and self-esteem. Uh, that could open up the company to liability. All kinds of harms in a system that was supposed to breed efficiency and, and help. Yeah, that's a great example. And it's, you know, a very true one. And I think that one was pretty high profile. Imagine all the situations that either have never been caught or were kind of too low profile to make it into the news. It happens all the time because the, the algorithm is a kind of a reflection of whatever you've fed it. So in that case, you had historical bias. And so the Historical bias in the resumes that they were using to feed the algorithm showed that men were hired more frequently, and that was success. It also comes down to, in terms of the metrics, how you're defining things. If your definition of success is that someone was hired, you're not necessarily saying that your definition is that person was a good, ended up being a good worker. Or even if you're looking at the person's performance reviews and saying, success would be that we hire somebody who performs well, but historically you hired more men than women. So even then, if your success metric is someone who performed well, you're already taking into account the historical bias that there are more men than women who are hired. So there are all different kinds of biases that are being captured in the data. Something that the data nutrition project is trying to do with the label that we've built is highlight these kinds of historical issues as well as the technical issues in the data. And that I think is an important balance to strike it's not just about what you can see in the data. It's also about what you cannot see in the data. So in the case that you just called out there with the resumes, 
you would be able to see that's not representative with respect to gender. And maybe uh, you'd be able to see things like these are all English language resumes. But what you would not be able to see are things like socioeconomic differences or people who never applied <laughs> or, you know, what the job market looked like whenever these resumes were collected. So you'll kind of not be able to see any of that if you just take a purely technical approach to what's in the data. So the, the data set nutrition label tries to highlight those things as well to data practitioners to say, before you use this data set, here are some things you should consider. And sometimes we'll even go as far as to say, you probably shouldn't use this data set for this particular thing because we just know that it's not good for that. And that's always an option is to say, don't use it, <laughs> right? It doesn't mean people won't do it. But at least we can give you a warning and we kind of hope that people have the best of intentions and are trying to do the right thing. So it's about explaining what is in the data set or in the data so that you can decide as a practitioner whether or not it is healthy for your usage. After the break, it's snack time. Come back hungry. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. So I'm holding a package of food right now, and I'm looking at the nutrition label, nutrition facts. It's got servings per container, the size of a serving, and then uh, numbers and percentages in terms of the daily percent of total fat, cholesterol, sodium, carbohydrates, protein, and a set of vitamins that I can expect in a single serving of this product. And then I can make an informed choice about whether and how much of that food stuff I want to put in my body, uh, how much garbage I want to let in. In this case, it's pretty healthy stuff. It's uh, dried mangoes, if you're curious. What's on your data nutrition label? Yeah, great question. And now I'm like kind of hungry. I'm like, oh, is it snack time? I feel like it's snack time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is the hardest part to me uh, about this project is what the right level of metadata is. So what are the right elements that we want to call out for our nutritional label? You know, what are the fats and the sodiums and these kinds of things? Because, you know, the, the complication here is that there are so many different kinds of data sets. I can have a data set about trees in Central Park, and I can have a data set about people in prison. So we've kind of identified that the harms that we're most worried about have to do with people. Mm. Um, not to say that we are you know, not worried about things like the environment or other things, but when it touches people or communities is when we see the greatest harms from an algorithmic standpoint in society. And so we kind of have a badge system that should be very quick, kind of icon-based that says this data set's about people or not. This data set includes subpopulation data. So, you know, includes information about race or gender or whatever status, right? This uh, data set can be used for commercial purposes or not. We've identified, let's say, 10 to 15 things that we think are kind of high level, almost like little food warning symbols that you would see on something. Mm. Like it's organic or it's got- The Surgeon General's warning, right? Exactly. So at a very high level, we have these kind of icons. And then underneath that, there are additional very important questions that we've highlighted that people will answer who own the data set. And then finally, there's a a section that says, here's the reason it was made. This data set was made. There's probably an intended use. Here are some other use cases that are possible or ways that other people have used it. And then here are some things that you just shouldn't do. So, So how do we make this approach more mainstream? Mainstream is a tough word because we're talking about people (laughs) who build AI. And I think that is becoming more mainstream for sure. Um, But we're really focused on data practitioners. So people who are taking data and then building things on that data. But there's kind of a bottoms up approach. It's very anti-establishment in some ways and very hacker culture. And so we've been working with a lot of data practitioners to say what works, what doesn't, is this useful, is it not? Make it open source, right? Open licenses, use it if you want. And just hoping that if we make a good thing, people will use it. A rising tide lifts all boats, we think. So, you know, we're not cagey about it because we just want better data. We want better data out there. And if people have the expectation that they're going to see something like this, that's awesome. 
there's also the, the top-down approach, which is regulation, policy. And I could imagine a world in which in the future, if you deploy an algorithm, especially in the public sector, you would have to include some kind of labeling on that, right? To talk about the data that it was trained on and provide a label for that. So it's kind of a two-way approach, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, when I think of analogs, like most of us don't know civil engineers personally, but we interact with their work on a regular basis through a system of trust, through standards, through approvals, through certifications. And data scientists are on par with like a civil engineer in my mind in that they erect structures that we inhabit on a regular basis. But I have no idea what rules they're operating by. I don't know what's in this algorithm. You know, I don't know how, what ingredients you use to put this together that's determining whether I get a job or a vaccination. What's your biggest dream for the data nutrition project? Where does it go? So I could easily say, you know, our dream would be that every data set comes with a label. Cool. But more than that, I think we're trying to drive awareness and change. So even if there isn't a label, you're thinking about, I wonder what's in this, and I, I wish it had a label on it. In the same way that I walk into a bakery and I see a cake that's been baked, and I might think to myself, I wonder what's in that cake. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, if it has this much of something, or maybe I should consider this when I decide whether to have four or five pieces of cake. We would want the same thing for a data set, where even if you encounter that data set in the wild, someone's created it, you just downloaded it from some repository on GitHub, there's no documentation, that you as a data practitioner will think to yourself, I wonder if this is representative. I wonder if the thing I'm trying to do with this data is responsible, considering the data, where it came from, who touched it, who funded it, where it lives, how often it's updated, whether they got consent from people when they took their data. And so we're trying to drive a culture change. I love that. And I, I love the idea that when I go to a bakery, one of the questions I'm not asking myself is, is that muffin safe to eat? Right? Is, is that cake going to kill me? It literally doesn't enter my mind because there's such a level of earned trust in the system overall that you know these people are getting inspected, that there's some kind of oversight, that they were trained in a reasonable way. So I know there's not arsenic in my muffins. So this brings me to zooming out a little bit further to artificial intelligence and the idea of standards, because I'm getting this picture from you that there's kind of a wild west in terms of what we're feeding into the systems that ultimately become some form of AI. What does the world look like when we have more standards in the tools and components that create AI? I think that our understanding of what AI is and what kinds of AI there are is going to mature. I imagine that there is a, a system of classification where some AI is very high risk and some AI is less high risk. And we start to have a stratified view of what needs to occur in each level in order to reach an understanding that there's no arsenic in the muffins. So at the highest level, when it's super, super risky, maybe we just don't use AI. This seems to be something that people forget is that we can decide whether or not to use it. Like, would you want an AI performing surgery on you with no human around? If, if it's really, really good, do you want that? Do you want to assume that risk? I mean, that is dealing with your literal organs, your heart. So I think that, you know, ideally what happens is you've got a good combination of 
regulation and oversight, which I do believe in, but then also training and, you know, good human intention to do the right thing. So when I think about these algorithms, I think of them as kind of automated decision makers. And I think they can pose a challenge to our ideas of free will and self-determination because we are increasingly living in this world where we think we're making choices, but we're actually operating within a narrow set of recommendations. What do you think about human agency in the age of algorithms? Whoa, these are the big questions. Um, Well, I mean, I think that we have to be careful not to give the machines more agency than they have. And there are people who are making those machines. So when we talk about, you know, the free will of people versus machines, it's like the free will of people versus the people who made the machines to me. Technology is just a tool. And I personally don't want to live in a world that has no algorithms and no technology because these are useful tools, but I want to decide when I'm using them and what I use them for. And so my perspective is really from the point of view of a person who has been making the tools. And I think that we need to make sure that those folks have the free will to say, no, I don't want to make those tools or this should not be used in this way, or we need to modify this tool in this way so those tools don't run away from us. Um, So I I guess I, I kind of disagree with the premise that it's people versus machines because people are making the machines and we're not at the Terminator stage yet. <laughs> Currently it's people and people, right? So, so let's, so let's like work together to make the right things um, for people. Yes. Kasha, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I've learned a lot and now I'm just thinking about arsenic in my muffins. Thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Garbage in, garbage out. It's a cycle that we see that doesn't just apply to the world of artificial intelligence, but everywhere. If I feed my body junk, it turns to junk. If I fill my planet with filth, it turns to filth. If I inject my Twitter feed with hatred, that breeds more hatred. It's pretty straightforward. But it doesn't have to be this way. In essence, Kasha fights to standardize thoughtfulness. And that fills me with so much hope. We're all responsible for something or someone. So let's always do our best to really consider what they need to thrive. If we put a little more goodness into our AI, our bodies, our planet, our relationships, and everything else, we'll see goodness come out. And that's a cycle I can get behind. Goodness in goodness out. This is just one part of the How to Citizen conversation about data. Who does data ultimately benefit? If the data is not benefiting the people, the individuals, the communities that provided that data, then who are we uplifting at the cost of others' justice? Next week, we dive deeper into how it's collected in the first place, and we meet an indigenous geneticist reclaiming data for her people. See you then. We asked Kasha what we should have you do, and they came up with a lot. So 
here's a whole bunch of beautiful options for citizening. Think about this. Like people, machines are shaped by the context in which they're created. So if we think of machines and algorithmic systems as children who are learning from us, we're the parents. What kind of parents do we want to be? How do we want to raise our machines to be considerate, fair, and to build a better world than the one we're in today? Watch Coded Bias. It's a documentary that explores the fallout around MIT Media Lab researcher Joy Volamwini's discovery that facial recognition don't see dark-skinned faces well. And this film is capturing her journey to push for the first ever legislation in the U.S. that would govern against bias in the algorithms that impact us all. Check out this online buying resource called the Privacy Not Included Buying Guide. Mozilla built this shopping guide, which tells you the data practices of the app or product that you're considering. And it's basically the product reviews we need in this hyper-connected era of data theft and hoarding and non-consensual monetization. Donate. If you got money, you can distribute some power through dollars to these groups that are ensuring that the future of AI is human and just. The Algorithmic Justice League, the ACLU, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. If you take any of these actions, please brag about yourself online. Use the hashtag HowToCitizen. Tag us up on Instagram at HowToCitizen. We will accept general, direct feedback to our inbox, comments at HowToCitizen.com. And make sure you go ahead and visit HowToCitizen.com because that's the brand new kid in town. We have a spanky new website. It's very interactive. We have an email list you can join. If you like this show, tell somebody about it. Thanks. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcast and Dustlight Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, Elizabeth Stewart, and Misha Youssef. Our senior producer is Tamika Adams. Our producer is Allie Kiltz, and our assistant producer is Sam Paulson. Stephanie Cohn is our editor, Valentino Rivera is our senior engineer, and Matthew Lai is our apprentice. Original music by Andrew Ethan, with additional original music for season three from Andrew Clausen. This episode was produced and sound designed by Sam Paulson. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio and Rachel Garcia at Dustlight Productions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Are you looking to build this year? If so, there is no better time than right now to start planning and to get your spot on the construction schedule. If you need a garage, a stall barn, a storage for vehicles, RV, boat, collectibles, or even a a shop for your farm, hobbies, or car restoration projects, visit MortonBuildings.com and start your construction process. With superior materials, craftsmanship, best-in-class warranty, Morton Buildings are made to last for generations. At Morton, the difference is in the details. From their cutting-edge innovations to their craftsmen in the field, they are dedicated to surpassing expectations. Their legacy of excellence spans more than 120 years, and Morton Buildings is 100% employee-owned with more than a quarter million satisfied customers. That means they're the industry leader you can trust. When you choose Morton, you'll experience quality at every step of the building process, starting before the walls even go up. Visit mortonbuildings.com to get started today. 